This is Jeb Blunt, author of Sales EQ, How Ultra-High Performers Leverage Sales-Specific Emotional Intelligence to Close the Complex Deal, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Otherwise, just visit marketingbookpodcast.com to subscribe. Today, we welcome Jeb Blunt back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Sales EQ, How Ultra-High Performers Leverage Sales-Specific Emotional Intelligence to Close the Complex Deal. Jeb Blunt is the author of eight books and among the world's most respected thought leaders on sales, leadership, and customer experience. Jeb spends more than 200 days each year delivering keynote speeches and training programs to high-performing sales teams and leaders across the globe. Through his global training organizations, which includes his company Sales Gravy, Channel EQ, and Innovate Knowledge, Jeb advises many of the world's leading organizations and their executives on the impact of emotional intelligence and interpersonal skills on customer-facing activities and delivers training to thousands of people. He has more than 25 years of experience with Fortune 500 companies, small and mid-sized businesses, and startups. He has been named one of the top 50 most influential sales and marketing leaders, a top 30 social selling influencer, and a top 10 sales expert to follow on Twitter. Jeb, congratulations on Sales EQ, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Douglas. It's such a pleasure to be back here with you. So I mentioned that you travel 200 days a year. I think you just got back yesterday from a big trip, and I appreciate you making time for me and the, the Marketing Book Podcast listenership. We also talked about the fact that you live in the Augusta, Georgia area, and that is the home of uh, legendary soul singer, R&B singer, James Brown, who was a tireless, indefatigable entertainer. He, he called himself the hardest working man in show business. And that's why I think you're the hardest working man in sales. Jeb Blunt is the James Brown of sales. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm, you're the only person in the world that calls me that, but I will wear that uh, moniker proudly. Yes. Yeah, so when you do all those keynotes, if they say, hey, what music do you want? Well, you know, there you go. You can have that. So the foreword to your book, it was by Anthony Anarino, who I had the honor of interviewing about his book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. And what I wanted to ask you to explain is what is sales EQ and why was this sort of your white whale of a book? Well, Sales EQ is sales-specific emotional intelligence. And I've been interested in emotional intelligence since I read Daniel Goldman's book back in 1995, 1996. Um, I'd just become a leader and someone put it on my desk. And it was fascinating that if you could gain control of your emotions, how much control you could get of everything else that was going on around you. And as you know, a young leader, it was apparent to me that my emotions had the best of me most of the time. But I had this belief, Douglas, that emotional intelligence – this and, and all emotional intelligence this is your ability to control and manage your own emotions and your ability to perceive and respond appropriately to the emotions of other people. I mean, if you break it down, it's pretty that that simple. But emotional intelligence, I, I believe, is specific to where whatever role you're playing. So if you're a parent, I think emotional intelligence is specific to being a parent. If you're a fireman or a, a teacher or a policeman or a leader or whatever role that you're playing, emotional intelligence is specific to your particular role and what you're doing. And it's specific to sales as well. And the thing to just really quickly define this, the thing that makes emotional intelligence in sales different than that of other pursuits is that in sales in a commercial relationship, the commercial relationship in and of itself is, is artificial. Two parties are coming together for the purpose of an outcome. And that outcome is typically, typically going to be that the, the relationship is typically going to be temporary until that outcome is achieved. And in, 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 in this environment, like this bubble of this commercial relationship, both parties are looking out for their best interests. So 
from the get-go, there's this level of trust that is missing. And what this what this requires for the salesperson is an, an ability to manage and control their disruptive emotions in that space because there's an outcome that they want to achieve and influence the emotions of their buyer or the stakeholder, whoever they're dealing with, in that situation because they want to influence the outcome that they would like to achieve. So you have big thing for salespeople is something that that I've labeled, and I'm, I don't know this is a scientific label. I picked it because I couldn't think of anything better to call it, called dual process. And dual process is the ability to have empathy or to be able to – and empathy, by the way, is to me is the meta skill of the 21st century. But it's the ability to stand in your buyer's shoes and perceive things from their point of view and be able to understand their situation and feel their situation and at the same time be able to focus on the outcome that you want to achieve in every single one of those conversations. That dual process is something that doesn't really exist in other relationships in that manner where I have to have empathy, but I'm shooting for an outcome. And that's the place that the, we call them ultra performers. The ultra performers in sales, the top earners in sales are masters at dual process. They are brilliant at it. And the people that are really, really bad in the sales process, they're either manipulative and narcissistic, so they're only focused on getting the outcome, or they're so empathetic that the relationship gets in the way of them moving the deal forward. And the people that are that are that are just, you know, brilliant at sales understand that dual process. But that's the that's the difference. And you ask why is this the white whale? I mean, the white whale is to use a Melville just, reference. Yeah, what I just gave you. Like if you if I you know you asked me to explain that. Okay. So like trying to explain that and teach this is really difficult. And I mean there's there's tons of books that have, are about that. And the, what, what makes it hard to teach is that you have to be able to explain this and show salespeople how to actualize what is, you know, in theory, sales-specific emotional intelligence inside the sales and buying process and give them the mechanisms that they need to manage their disruptive emotions and to influence buyers without being too academic, right? So, you know, being so theoretical that it doesn't make sense, but also not being so, you know, so parochial, I guess. I don't know if this, maybe that's not the best word for it, but just so basic that it's it's boring. And as a writer, um, it took me well over a year of agonizing work to come to Sales EQ and get, and to get to this point so that hopefully we've achieved you know the, that that goal. Yeah, that brings to mind, I think there was a Hemingway quote. He said, writing is easy. You just sit down at the typewriter and bleed. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I feel that pain. I blood, sweat, and tears into this into this book, the hardest book I've ever written. Well, just to wrap up that about the sales EQ part, you, one line that I, I latched onto amongst many, you say average salespeople delude themselves into believing that buyers make rational, logical decisions based on empirical data and information, but that's not how the human mind works. Emotions come first than logic. But before we go any further, let me add, we've got lots of marketers around the world listening to this, a lot of sales folks too, and business owners. Can you just touch briefly on why it is such a problem for marketers who don't understand sales and what their sales colleagues are doing and what their what their day is like? Well, let's let's just go back to that line, right? So sale, you know, average salespeople are delusional about why people buy. And there's something called the universal law of awareness, which says that you can't be delusional and successful at the same time. And I think that marketers are, share that delusion. And one of the problems that marketers have is they have this delusion that if I just put enough data and charts and facts onto marketing collateral or into an explainer video, um, if I do those things that people will buy. And if you... If you go back, there was a couple of years ago, Google was running these brilliant video ads. They may still be running them. And it, they there was nothing about Google on them. Like all they were were a dad and a kid, and they were just pure emotion. And at the end, you know, it was, you know, basically Google will help you find this emotion, find what you're looking for. They hit you with the heart so hard that people who saw those videos remember them to this day. They'll talk about them. If I, if I mention them in a room, everybody shake their head because everybody remembered them. And you think about Google. I mean, Google is, this is, you know, this is as data-driven, empirical as you can get. 
And they understood, they were smart enough to get that it's emotions first, then it's logic. It's emotions first, then it's search. And with the same thing with marketers, with marketers, the, the what I try to do when I'm working with marketers, and believe it or not, we get hired by CMOs probably more than any other uh, business executive that brings my company in. Interesting. Mostly, mostly it's around prospecting, right? Because they're they're out there trying to generate leads, and the whole organization is staring at the marketer, going, "Why aren't you doing your job?" And the marketers are, you know, saying, "Hey, I can only do part of the job." But I think when, when I work with when I when I work with marketers, when I'm sitting with a marketer. I just ask the question. They, they'll say, "Tell me, you know, tell me how people buy from you." And they start talking. I go, "So what? So what? So what? So what? So what?" It's evil. It's mean. They get mad at me. That means I just it's ask working. The question. It doesn't matter. I mean, you've got to think about why would this happen? Friday afternoon, I was with a CEO of an emerging pharmaceutical company who has hired us to to coach them, and we were just sitting down having a conversation. And the CEO was talking about all of the data, like here's all the reasons why doctors should, you know, should support and prescribe, you know, our, our drug. And I'm sitting in front of going, so who, so what? I mean, go in there and tell a doctor all this stuff. What, what's the, what's the response? Well, they don't, this response isn't very good. I go, yeah, because you can't argue them into believing that they're wrong. You have to win their heart first. Let's talk about how do you do that? Like, how do you get the doctor on your side? And I'm not saying that's easy. Don't get me wrong. I mean, this this conversation we were having was it wasn't a here's your you know here's your magic pill that's going to make every doctor in the world love you, right? But it's it's you got to get out of out of the the data and you got to get into the heart. It's understanding that. And if I were giving marketers, and this let's just take you know forget about your CMOs, forget about your vice president of marketing. Let's talk about the marketing manager in your organization. The, the people that are really doing the marketing work, you know, they're not going to all the meetings with you. They're the ones that are writing the copy. They're the ones that are creating collateral. They're the ones that are working with your ad agency to build your explainer videos, to write stuff, you know, copy for your website, to create uh, white papers and articles. I mean, these are the folks that are doing the work. If you want to make them better at what they do, if you want to get them better connected to the sales organization, put them on airplanes, send them, put them on the sales floor. Make them spend time, regular time, with the sales organization, listening and being involved in real conversations with real customers. Because if you do that, they'll get better. And and I know that to be true because at one point this is what I did in you know in my company, and um and by you know getting the the marketers to the these they're professionals and most of these people are really smart, but getting them connected to the salespeople, not just sitting in meetings where you're talking at each other. I mean, actually go out there and experience it. And I'm going to, and one, one last thing, Douglas on that. And this is for the CMOs getting salespeople in a room, like doing a focus group and asking salespeople, what do you need is a losing proposition. (laughs) Salespeople don't know how to articulate that. They're not marketing executives. They're, they're salespeople. So when you get get them in a room and say, what do you need? You know how futile that is because they go, wow, we need this and this and this and this and this. And then you produce all that stuff and then you go out in the field and they're not using any of it. (laughs) So the way you do that is you go out and you spend time with them and – and you stand in the in the prospect shoes or the customer shoes, and you experience it that way, and then you come back and say, "How do we connect what we do in marketing to how the sales process works, and how the buying process works, and how the decision making process works, so that it's in line with the system, not apart from it?" Does that yeah. make sense? Working together, and I think even if they just did it once, it'll have mm-hmm. a major impact. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you're talking about asking salespeople what they want. It reminds me of the story about Henry Ford, yeah. <laughs> where he said, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a faster horse that ate less. <laughs> so, so, and I guess Steve Jobs probably talked about the same, same yep. sort of thing. Can you talk about this perfect storm that the sales profession is in the middle of? Yeah, I think that the, you know, we're just, we've entered a place where, and this, I think for marketers, this is the place that marketers are struggling with as well. And that is that information is ubiquitous. I call it the age of transparency. So a buyer or a stakeholder can find out anything about anything, anywhere, anytime. Now, one of the big issues for, for buyers in the space is that it's confusing because if you go to five different websites, they all look exactly the same. Right, Everybody's saying the same thing. You have a great story about thing, that in right? the book, yeah. 
but if you if you think about the perfect storm, you've got the ubiquitous availability of information about anything all the time. You have business moving at the speed of light. You have insane distractions. I mean, there's just we're constantly being bombarded. And I think people are tired because their brains are are, are being pulled in so many different directions. You have disruptive change that is scaring people to death. I mean, you know, you wake up one day and you're the king of the hill, and then you know some 23-year-old builds a better app, and no longer you no longer exist. And I know that that's not how most businesses are operating. You know, an air conditioning, you know, HVAC business isn't being you know disrupted by an app, but that doesn't matter. That they feel that way because they read it in the news. So if you're a business owner, you feel that way. If you're a buyer, you feel that way. And so it's causing buyers to be less likely to make a change than before. Not because they, you know, they they don't want to change. It's just that they're afraid, so they have a lot of fear. And in the middle of all of that, right, all of this happening, this this, this brew that is putting buyers in much more control than they've ever been before because of the fact that they have information and that they can buy things anywhere, anytime, anyhow, with the you know with their phone or whatever. A lot of the things that that we used to believe worked really well in sales are are having less less viability. So you know, being able to pitch your product and services and know your your your, your features and benefits, you know, th- having a great elevator pitch. Although I still hear people teaching that, those things really just don't land very well in, in today's world. What you've got is that you've got that happening at the same time. This new workforce that's coming in. You know, the boomers are leaving, right? The Gen Xers like like me, we're moving into the last say 15 20 years of our careers and the you know the business world is being being dominated by millennials now m- millennials you know has almost become a bad name like we say millennial in a bad way and I, and I, w- I hope people will quit doing that it's just the name of a group of people and I and millennials have the same needs same feelings same emotional you know desires that everyone else does and their brains by the way work exactly like your brain works they work like everybody else's brains because the brain just does what it does but we've got a generation of salespeople who are coming into the sales force. And I'm not saying all of them because I meet millennials who totally get this, right? They, they understand it top to bottom. But you have an entire generation coming in that they basically treated human interaction uh, and human beings uh, in the abstract. So you And it's weird for, for Gen Xers because we see people who like they have this – they're totally into like social justice and they believe that they believe in the human you know condition and they want everybody to to get along and feel good the causes treat, are important to them yeah but but they treat the the individual human relationship at arm's length it's abstract i don't have to really get emotionally connected to anybody cuz i've got a phone and i can text them right so you've got that happening and at, and in the middle of all of this right buyers are saying look I don't have a lot of time because I've got all these distractions. I mean, geez, if I spend time with you, I can't watch cat videos. So, yeah. or I you know, have a so, day job and somebody's thrown <laughs> this purchase right. and thrown me on a buying committee. Yeah, so I've got to deal with this stuff. So, so buyers are saying, look, if I'm going to spend my time with you, which I could spend doing other things, right? I could I could go on, you know, Pokemon Go and go chase Pikachu's or whatever that you chase on Pokemon Go. They're saying if I spend time with you, I want more out of that than just you pitching you. And I noticed that that doesn't that's not happening like at the intellectual level. It is definitely happening at the emotional level. It happened to me, excuse me, this past week. I had a salesperson call me out of the blue, answer my phone, and the first like five minutes of it was a total waste of my time. I ended up stopping. You're a very patient person, Jeb. Although I guess when you get cold calls, those are prospects too. (laughs) I said you guys need to hire me first, and so but I said I'm gonna give you a mulligan on this because here's the deal: you had a great project, great service, and I'm probably gonna buy it from you. But you could have you could have just talked about what I wanted, like talk about what's important to me, and said you were talking about what's important to you, and. And I think what buyers are saying is I want more from a a meeting with the rep than an elevator pitch and a dissertation of their marketing materials. And so the buyers are saying that and companies like, you know, groups like CEB are out there surveying buyers and saying, what do you want? But it's the same thing. You put a bunch of buyers in a room and ask them what they want for salespeople. They go, I prefer salespeople just didn't call me. I mean, that's what the buyer would say. I mean, because they, they, I want to watch cat videos, not talk to, to salespeople. 
And so the the you know the marketers hear that the you know the um, CEB hears that, and so they come up with things like challenger sell and insight selling and helping and leading. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people are saying out there, and, and we have created these modern sales processes that are built around you know sellers gaining control of the conversation, a bunch of you know uh, things that sound really good, but the buyers. They're not talking with their brain. They're talking with their intellect. I mean, I can tell you intellectually what I want, but that doesn't matter because the brain wants what the brain wants, right? The brain's going to do what the brain's going to do. Yeah, and they're following a script probably more than they should be. They are. So what's happening is you've got programs like The Challenger, which, you know, The Challenger is a great book and the program is fantastic. It's a very hard time being actualized in the real world by real people because you have to be a savant to be able to follow it exactly. You have to be really, really good at it. And they're you're putting this, you know, this really complex, compelling program, and that's true for all the programs that follow that genre, into the hands of a 24-year-old sales rep who got out of college three years ago and has no idea how to build a relationship. And the rep goes in and tells a 50-year-old buyer that they're doing it all wrong. And it's a surprise when the buyer says, have a nice day. See you later. Yeah, and then kid. the buyer says, this isn't working for me. So yeah. so where, where Sales EQ plugs into that is it's saying, hey, I'm not saying that the modern sales processes are wrong. I think that like when I read Challenger, I'm like, I've been doing this my whole life. I totally get this. I mean, it makes sense to me. But I'm, but what we're doing and, and what a lot of our clients are doing and one of the reasons why Sales EQ iterated was because so many of our clients who have adopted these 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 you know challenger like sales programs are having a really really hard time with it. I mean, their their people just are they just sound like a bunch of robots out pitching, which is not what the programs are about. So we plug Sales EQ in to teach them the human relationship process like how do you how do you frame that how do you build relationships how do you connect with human beings emotionally and how do you use frame you know, emotional frameworks to influence their behavior so that you can actualize that inside the sales and buying process however you and your company choose to do that so sales eq in essence is sales process agnostic so in this perfect storm all of these things are happening the one thing that is missing in all of it is that we're that we're not teaching human beings how to deal with other human beings. And by the way, they're not getting taught that anywhere. I mean, you don't get taught that really, uh, you get taught that in kindergarten and first grade. And after that, you don't get taught it anymore. Yeah. So, so we're in, certainly not teaching in college. So we're trying to pull that back in. But again, you know, Douglas, we've got this problem and that's, it's really cool. We're going to teach you human relationships. What you learn in kindergarten can work except for, you know, in, in the sales process, it's dual process, right? I've got to have empathy and outcome. I'm in a relationship that has a reason why it's there, and that reason is temporary. And so, if we don't, if we don't teach people relationship skills in that context, it doesn't work. So that's the perfect storm. That's what's happening in the world right now, and and it is complex. It's complicated, and it's certainly there's no magic pill that solves it all. But I do believe that when we help salespeople learn how people operate, like just how human beings make decisions and how they do things, it becomes easier for those salespeople to move their deals, their sales process, their, their sales or their deals forward in the pipeline. And we just see it all the time. I'll give you a quick story. This uh, guy named Chris, and it, this, this story made it late in the book. It's a really small piece of the book, but he sent me an email at the end of January and I, I, we had done a, a workshop, a sales EQ workshop for he and his team at the beginning of January. And he's meeting with this buyer. It's a really tough buyer. And the buyer says, so you know, why don't you explain to me where you get off with a much higher price than, than your competitor? Chris says, what I would have normally done is I would have started justifying my high price. So I'd have been trying to argue them into believing that they were wrong. I used the brain crack, you know, listen, that you taught me, which is, Brain crack is a self-disclosure loop that you can that once you get someone talking, like their brain starts releasing dopamine every time they self-reveal. Yes. This was one of my favorite parts of the book, Jeb. You had me at crack. Yeah. So but he said he wrote me, he writes me this like email. says brain crack. It's like he's using brain crack. He says, So I just asked him, tell me what you like about your current vendor. 
And he says the, the buyer just goes off on this 45-minute rant about all the things the vendor's doing wrong for them. And he said, I didn't get in the way. I just let it go. He said, I wanted to jump in. I was, you know, my, the, I felt the impulse to, you know, to start, you know, talking. And he, and he learned the lesson. Like the minute you start talking, your ears turn off and so does your prospect. So he stayed out of the way. The person wore themselves out and at the end said, so, so, you know, so why, you know, why are you charging me so much more? And he just said, because we don't treat our customers like that. And the person <laughs> smiled and That's signed right. his contract, right? Yeah. And I mean, you would, it's that simple. I don't think anything has gotten me as excited about asking questions in a sales situation as your concept of brain crack. I mean, it really was. It, and, 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 and as you explained it, I'm thinking, holy cow, yeah, that's, that is how it works. And so now it's like, I, I can't wait to go ask more questions. And you know, it's, yeah, so you should be asking more questions. You ask more questions. But now it's like, it, it's, just, it's just more, I'm more excited about answering the questions. And it reminds me, a couple of years ago, my daughter, who's a college freshman, like your son, Uh, she was applying for a job teaching sailing at the yacht club and I, I had to drive her over there. She hadn't gotten her driver's license yet. And she said, well, do you have any suggestions on, you know, what I should do in this interview, which may have been the only time she's ever asked dad for any, uh, (laughs) any advice. (laughs) And I said, well, why don't you, why don't you ask him a, ask him some questions? And she said, well, like what? And I said, well, ask him what his ideal sailing instructor would be like. And so when I picked her up later, she said, well, it looks like I'm going to get the job. And I, she said, towards the end of the 15-minute interview, she asked that question, and he went on for like 30 more minutes. And so then he started discussing this dream employee, and the whole time he associated that with her. Exactly right. It's just been back three years. So And because and when he was talking, he felt significant and important. And when he felt important, she was giving him the greatest gift you can give another human being. And so he felt great about her, but he also felt an obligation because she had made him feel so, so good to offer the job. Just simple human frameworks. Yeah. Well, of course, she's awesome anyway. And she's awesome. (laughs) But uh, Jeb, let me ask just a really hard question, okay? The question that you as a practitioner, leader, author, consultant, researcher, and trainer for years and years have been on a mission to answer. Why do people buy? That's the billion-dollar question, okay? Because there's a so follow-up the, to that one, so get ready. There is. And the, and by the way, when you have the exact answer to this, you will be buying an island right next to Richard Branson's. But the answer is really, really simple. People buy for their reasons, not yours. Yes. That's simple, right? It's that simple. And all you got to do is figure out what their reasons are and then connect right your product to those reasons and you improve the probability that they're going to buy from you. Yes, it reminded me of the Simon Sinek TED Talk video where he talks about start with why, and he keeps saying, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And throughout your book, you kept saying, people buy for their own reasons, not yours. Yep. Okay, so you did very well there, Blunt. Now, let's go to the second most difficult question. How do we influence them to buy? Well, then you know, that's- And I'll hang up and listen offline. No, I'm just <laughs> That's what the whole book. You got to read the book to figure that out, right? That's the. It's a. It's a complicated process influencing people to buy. But well, I think the human brain. I don't know. There's anything more complicated than the human no. brain. No, it is it's extremely complicated. So what what you have to do is you have to start instead of thinking, okay, there's all of this complexity. There's infinite complexity. You have to start thinking, what are the influence frameworks that improve the probability that they're going to buy my solution, and my favorite chapter in the entire book is the chapter on win probabilities. And because this is how ultra high performers play the game of sales. And in the book, we talk about ultra high performers. And and the reason that I I went to that road is that these frameworks move you into the top one, 2% of, of sales. And, and if you, if you go look at your top performers, they have a really hard time telling you what they're doing. That's why getting them in a room and saying, tell me what you're doing differently. Trust me, they have no clue. A lot of what they're doing is innate. But you can duplicate those methodologies and you can take an average performer and you can turn an average performer into a top performer if you show them how to do those things. I know this. I teach people who are average all day long. I mean, that's what I do. And unfortunately, I think that, you know, Mr. Hoffman was right. You know, in his book, I think we we have a, a tendency to teach, you know, average people how to be average. I mean, I just think we just that's what we do. So. It, but if you take a look at, at win probabilities and you say, okay, how, why do people buy? They buy for their reasons, not yours, right? So how do we get them to buy? Well, 
I don't know that, right? I don't know 100% why anyone would buy. If I knew that answer to that question, I would have my own island and it would be next to Richard Branson's and it would be bigger than Richard Branson's. But what, I, <laughs> but what I can tell you is that I can I can play a game where if I've, I'm dealing with buyers and I can move them, my probability to 80% with a group of buyers, I'm not going to get every single buyer to buy, but I'm going to get most of them to buy. And if I get most of them to buy, I'm better off than everyone else because there's no there's no perfect answer. So the way that ultra high performers play the game of sales is they're focusing on win probabilities. And they do this through, you know, A, making sure that they're picky about who they're working with to begin with. You know, so if I'm working with a buyer that has a low propensity or a low probability of buying to begin with, I'm wasting my time. And this is, you know, what a lot of marketers are doing with lead generation. They're scoring leads. They're um, they're trying to help salespeople figure out where they need to go directionally. I think strategically, they're coming up with the, you know, your um, with qualifying methodologies and um, and and understanding what the ideal qualified prospect looks like. I think sales managers have to do a lot of that. But one thing that 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 you do immediately to improve your win probability is you just don't spend time with people who aren't going to buy. And that doesn't mean they're going to buy from you, but I like I want to spend time with people who are going to make a decision. So they're in a buying window. There is a trigger event. There is a contractual event. There is something happening that is creating a reason for them or a compelling reason for them to do something. And and those reasons may wane. I mean, you may end up being in a situation where they're really hot and then it wanes, but if you don't know that, then you don't know when to disconnect. They're picky. Like they just don't put stuff in the pipeline that they shouldn't be getting into the pipeline. Therefore, they leverage qualification methodologies, and they do this from the very beginning to the end to make sure that they are using empirical evidence or data that gets in the way of their emotional need to cling to a deal they've invested in. In other words, salespeople have a really bad problem with sunk cost. They put they put a lot of effort into an account. The account's not going to close, so they hold on to it and hold on to it and hold on to it, and they ride it all the way down to the depths of the, the, the ocean like the Titanic. Yeah, and you know, investors do that with a stock that keeps going down. There's a similar they psychology. Sh- it's similar because the brain works that way for every human being out there. Like, we all do this. Yeah, yeah. And and likewise, you can use this on your on your prospect side. Like So, for example, if you're a salesperson and you ask for lots of little commitments and you ask your prospect to invest their time and match your effort in the process, then they're investing in the process. Therefore, your probability at the end that they move forward and make a decision is is higher than if they make no investment. So it's the same thing. It goes back and forth. There was one example in the book where you talk about a, an ultra high performer who, if she's not connecting emotionally with the prospect, she, she passes on it. Absolutely. <laughs> she's Absolutely. that good. She knew that if there wasn't an emotional connection, the chances were that she wasn't going to be uh, selling to him. That was, that, I was very impressed with that. We're not recommending that for everybody who's starting out, but let me ask you a question that has as much to do with marketing as it does with sales. Can you explain what you call an ideal qualified prospect, IQP, and why so many companies have not defined theirs and why that is such a fundamental problem? I mean, I think we go back to basic win probability. If you're dealing with the, if you put a prospect into your database or into into your pipeline, for example, and you move them into as an opportunity uh, into your pipeline, and they're they're not ideal for your business, bad things happen, right? First of all, you spend and waste a lot of time on a prospect who's probably not going to buy from you. And if they are going to buy from you, maybe they're the wrong prospects. So they're not they're not nearly as profitable. Maybe they're really difficult to work with. Maybe they're not a good fit. So, like when I grew up early in my career, I worked in the uniform industry. And when when new people would start off, they would all go out and call on roofers because roofers were easy and roofers would do business with you. But we didn't want roofers because roofers were low profitability and really difficult to work with. And they ended up being you know sort of fly by night things. But new salespeople would go out there unless the sales manager got in the way and said, listen, we don't call on these these businesses. They're not our businesses. So it's important that salespeople understand the strike zone so that they're not swinging at ugly deals, that they're not wasting their time. And in big companies, and if you work for a you know a company of, of let's say two hundred fifty million dollars or higher, it's likely that that company has evolved to a place that they have a pretty good understanding of what their ideal qualified prospect is going to be for a particular product set or for a particular marketplace or a particular vertical. And it's likely that they're communicating that in some way during training, and it's likely that sales managers 
are helping their salespeople stay in front of them. And in those cases, when salespeople get away from the IQP profile, it's usually a sales management coaching problem, not necessarily a marketing issue. With companies that are smaller and evolving, let's say you're evolving and or maybe you have a disruptive product that no one really knows they need because you're just building it. Sometimes it's not easy to understand exactly what that is all the time. But because the organization is moving so fast, what it does is it brings salespeople in and throws at the product at the at the, um, at the problem. But it doesn't take time to sit back and say, okay, who's buying our product? Who are the most profitable customers? Why are they buying our product? What's causing them to do this? What are the compelling reasons? Who are the people buying? And then like gathering that information and at least beginning a process and iterating it. And so if you're a salesperson and you're in one of those companies, my advice is stop. And you're going to have to go do that work yourself because you may not even have a marketing department that's going to be able to work with you in that, right? Um, you may you may have entrepreneurs that are there that are savants that don't really understand, but they're they're brilliant. So you need to stop and make sure you're calling on the right people. And if you're um, working for a larger company, what I suggest is go spend some time with your top performers and and learn the nuances. So I can tell you on paper what your IQP is. But there's nuances inside that 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 data that helps me get better, more directional, and better focused, so that I'm not just getting the the facts. Like here are the here here are the ideal qualifying data, the technical qualifiers, for example. But help me understand the emotional qualifiers. What are the things that I'm looking for? What are the what are the signs that tell me that that this is a prospect that's probably going to move forward? Some of that is also you know we talk about um, once you understand that engagement and micro commitments, but some of that is something you find. Out once you get into the deal, um, once you start working with it, you may find that what looked good on paper once you get there is terrible. Like my friend who says, look, if I get there and I cannot get an emotional connection, I pack up and walk away because I know that the probability that I'm going to close this deal goes down. You're probably not going to find that at the beginning. Like that's not that's not something that's going to happen until you get there and you start having conversations. Right, but then you can start to iterate and refine it as as you should be doing with all of this yes. activity. Let Let's just go and, and drop a few more value bombs for the for the people. I just got to ask you, Jeb, what are the three words you should never ever use in <laughs> sales? My favorites, my favorites, just checking in. Oh, Oh my God. Oh, my God. I mean, when I'm sitting with, when I'm working with sales teams and I hear this over and over, I hear them on the phone. I'm saying, hey, I'm just checking in to see if you got, I'm just checking in to see if my, my prices went up. Just checking in. Has anything changed? Never, ever say that. Never (laughs) say that. And what's crazy is it's so habitual. That I, I we had this group last year that we 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 pulled them off. They were they were inside salespeople, and they were selling like big big products. So these were um these were big buys, fifty thousand dollar buys, and they were they were blended with an outside sales team. But some of the sales were happening, and what would happen is that the marketing department was doing a great job of creating demand, and that demand would call in. And the, they would call into the call center. The salespeople would talk to the prospect, understand what they were looking for, and then they would put together a quote, and then they would send out a quote and schedule the next meeting. Well, the problem was most of the salespeople wouldn't schedule the next meeting. They would just send out the quote, and then they would just check in forever. <laughs> like they would just check in. And what would happen – and this is the aha moment for me. When they called to just check in, they would say, just checking in to see if you got my email and took a look at the quote. And the buyer would almost always say, no, I haven't listened to, looked at it yet. No, I haven't looked at it yet. Almost always. like I'm talking about 90% of the time the buyer <laughs> would say that. And I spent a week there listening to this. I'm like, this is, this, is, this is terrible. Think about the time we're wasting. And I'm thinking about win probabilities. So we made a simple change. We got, got three or four and we're going to test something. So instead of saying, I'm just checking in to see if you got the quote, they would call and say, the reason I'm calling is to find out which product you want more information on. A different question. And when they did that, 80% of the buyers responded with, well, I was looking at this, or, you know, I looked at your quote, it was a little high, or I was wondering if you could show me a couple other products, or they went from 80% of the people saying, no, I haven't looked at it to 80% of the people engaging in a conversation. Now think about that. All we did was change the language. Why? The reason is, is that we know what just checking in is. I mean, in our in our subconscious mind, when someone says, I'm just checking in, you're busy, you got things going, you don't even think about it. It's a buyer script. The buyer script is, no, I haven't looked at it yet. And they just say it. They may have looked at it 10 times, but they just say, no, I haven't looked at it yet because their subconscious drives that. What, what we have to do instead of, instead of saying the same thing that everyone else does, which is a pattern, and the person's brain ignores the pattern so it can get back to something else, 
you, you disrupt the pattern by saying something they're not expecting, which is, could you tell me which of the products I sent you that you like the most? Or which one of the products do you have more questions on? And by doing that, that all of a sudden the brain couldn't operate on what do you call it automatic pilot right right but here's what's so amazing so we ran the experiment we sit down with people we roll the calls for them we show them the statistics and then we get them all together do a training show them the script put them back on the phone and the salespeople start just checking in again because they the habit of just checking in is so ingrained that it's their script they were having a hard time getting away from it so that's, I mean, th- now that you got me on my soapbox, I'm all yes. riled up and crazy about this. But yeah, don't ever say I'm just checking in. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pushing your buttons. What is the <laughs> one question ultra high performers never ask? So we talk in the book about cognitive dissonance, which is this, this terrible mental stress that human beings feel when we are trying to hold two disparate thoughts or two disparate values in our brain at the same time. And it's something that you, you interviewed Cialdini. It's something that he talks about in his first book, The uh, Influence, which is the, the this idea of commitment and consistency. So human beings have have this um, this innate desire, this driven desire to be consistent with our values, with what we believe, with our self-image. And cognitive dissonance is, is when that, that consistency gets challenged because they're trying to do diff- two different things. So – Everybody who's listening to this call has done this at one point in their life. And if you listen to salespeople, especially listen to salespeople who are using the BANT qualification methodology, and especially young salespeople, sales managers are always always hammering them. They're saying, are you talking to the decision maker? Are you talking to the decision maker? We've been saying this our whole lives. That's like the sales manager script, right? So the salesperson calls up and they get a seeker. Now, for all the marketers out there, seekers are inbound marketing fodder. Seekers are the people that show up for your webinars. They're the ones that download your white papers. They're the people that the boss sent to get more information. You describe them as the ones that fill out the forms. They fill out the forms. So seekers are a place where a lot of salespeople get stuck. So the seeker says, and it happens in my world, people, seekers call us for, in, for, for um, keynote speeches. I never get the vice president of sales calling. The vice president of sales assistance calls or someone in marketing calls. Hey, we're looking for things. If my salesperson gets stuck with a seeker, we almost never get the deal. Almost never. Here's what sales people do. They're dealing with a seeker. Seeker shows up for a webinar. The marketing department sends the leads to the salespeople. The salespeople are supposed to call the leads and set appointments. Salesperson calls up and says, hey, you came to our webinar. What do you think about it? The person says, well, it was really, really intriguing. I liked it very much. I'd like to learn more about that. Salesperson says, great. Let me schedule a meeting with you. The person says, fantastic. Salesperson schedules a meeting to do a demo or whatever. And then they ask the one question you should never, ever ask. They say, well, Douglas, I'm just curious. Are you the decision maker? Oh, yeah. 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 I I make all the decisions around here. Exactly. Now, here's what's happening, right? Why would they lie to you? Because what's happening is you go through the entire sales process, you present your proposal, and if you're a self-respecting salesperson or you lead salespeople, you see this happening every single day. They do the last proposal and the person goes, well, I'm going to need to think about it. And they go, what do you need to think about? They go, well, I got to talk to my boss first. And you're thinking to yourself, you told me you're the decision maker. But here's what happened. When you ask their decision maker, you triggered cognitive dissonance. Every human being believes that they matter. So the person has two things going on at the same time. One is their insatiable need to feel important. They know that they tell you they're a decision maker that you're going to pay attention to them. And if you pay attention to them, they feel appreciated, valued, important. At the same time, they got cognitive dissonance happening. And that means that if I say, if they say I'm not the decision maker, they have to, at, at that moment, admit to you that they're not important. And because they feel like they're important and their self-image is that I'm important and they need to be consistent with that at the subconscious level, it's too painful to admit that they're not. So they're not lying to you overtly. They're not saying I'm just lying to you. They're, they're telling you a mistruth to protect their fragile ego and they do it at the subconscious level without even thinking about it. It happens almost as a script. Yeah. So you should never ask that question. Yeah, and you explain in the book, yeah, these are the other things you should be doing. Yeah. Well, let me just ask one other question because you said you get so many questions about closing. And is there a holy grail of closing? Yeah, ask. I mean, no, there's no But close, not like, ask but- once. Just just ask. Like you have to ask all the time. I mean, here's the thing about let's go back to commitment and consistency. All sales is, and you talk to Anthony Arino, he he says the same thing. Um, 
sales is a series of asks, right? So yeah, small micro commitments. Yeah, it's the first ask is for time. It's the hardest ask you make in sales. I mean, that's prospecting, right? But it's a series of micro commitments that you're asking for. A series of next steps. So here's here's rule number one: never, ever, 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 ever. Write that down. Ever leave a meeting with a prospect, either by phone or in person where a next step hasn't been agreed to and is on both person's calendar. That's never. If you if you leave without a next step, your probability of winning that deal goes down exponentially. You never leave without a next step. Um, and at the same time, you should be asking for as many micro-commitments as you can along the way because each time your buyer makes a commitment, they have to change their, their self-image to, to align with that new commitment. And you need to go out of your way to test their commitment. That is a big takeaway from the book. Testing engagement, testing engagement, testing engagement. Why? You only have so much time. So, um, so if they're if they're not willing, right, to to match your effort, if they're not willing to do things, if they're not willing to be involved, then they're telling you loud and clear, "Hey, I'm just not into you." And they're allowed, they're willing to let you do the work. I mean, they they don't want conflict. They don't want to tell you that, "Hey, I don't, I don't want to be your friend or hang out with you." But they're they're also saying if if you want to like you know be in my world, if you want uh, you know to, uh, to to hang out with me, you're going to have to do all the work, and you have to say no. This doesn't work that way. And oh, by the way, if they do some of the work, they begin to value the work that they're doing. They begin to value the process, which increases the probability they're going to do business with you. And by the way, when they make a commitment, a commitment, a commitment, a commitment, it's easier for them to make the biggest commitment, which is to give you money. But I just can't tell you how many times I walk out of meetings with salespeople, with the companies that hire us, and I, we just we walk out the door, and I'm like, well, what's the next step? And they go, well, I'm going to give Bob a call next week. We're going to put some things together. I'm going to email it over, and I'm going to call him back. You know, and you're just like, oh, my God. It never works out for you when you do that. Yeah, you and, and the book an makes step. that really clear. The other thing I had to laugh at, we both live in the South, and Southerners, I think, are some of the most difficult people to decode. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, they won't always come right out and say, no, I don't want to do business with you, which I found so refreshing when I lived in New York. <laughs> but yes, right. when you are able to do these little tests of how engaged and committed they are, they really are very revealing tells of whether this, you know, it, one of the things is a tell of, are they in fact in as much pain as they they say they might be? Is this exactly. really a priority or not? So Jeb, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Gosh, that's a really good question. It's the first person who's asked me that question. I think that would go back to our what we said earlier, people buy for their reasons, not yours. And if you want people to buy from you and buy from you a lot, I think the biggest thing to take away is that you have to, A, understand what their reasons are. And this is one of the reasons why I spend so much time on discovery. I probably, I think the biggest chapter in the book is on discovery, which is the 80% of, this, of sales is asking questions and listening. And that's, that's where the, the, you know, the meat of sales happens is in discovery. You got to understand that and build a case, but you also have to to step into their shoes, speak their language, and you have to connect the dots uh, to why they should do business with you based on their reasons, not your reasons, on using their language, not yours. And if you took one thing away, I think that would be it. And the book itself gives you the the formula. If there's if there's, if there's a formula, it gives you the formula for how to actualize that in the real world with real prospects. Well, we could do this interview for three hours because I really haven't done it justice. There's so many <laughs> things in the book that, honestly, as a, as a business owner, I was reading the book a little more slowly <laughs> and writing down things that I wasn't going to ask you in the question. I've already been emailing my colleagues saying, "Oh, oh, oh, check this out. We got to do this." So, <laughs> just just uh, parenthetically to the, to the listeners. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? You know, you just used, we talked about Cialdini, um, Persuasion is sitting right here in front of me. Um, that's a book that's, uh, that's out right now that I, I recommend. We talked about Anthony's book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. I'm, I'm staring at that book right now. Uh, you had better have read that already. <laughs> you should have read that. I, I say it's the only sales, sales guide you'll ever need except for my books. But oh, Anthony's a good friend. And this is a good, your book, a companion piece really to Fanatical Prospecting. And as you know, before we started, I brought up Amazon and it, you know how it says uh, customers who bought this also bought that? Three books, Fanatical Prospecting, your book, and Anthony's book. And I thought, man, you guys are really powerful the way you were able to... <laughs> 
control it's, it like that. It's really, it's really neat. Yeah, I think Fanatical Prospecting paired with Sales EQ, in my humble opinion, and I'm, you know, I wrote the books, but there are books that I would have written for myself. I mean, I, when I read the books, I read them as if I'm learning from them, and I and I go back and read the work that I've done. But th- you put those two books together, and you have a winning formula that will make you a lot more money. And there's another book out recently, James Muir's book, uh, The Perfect Close. I think The Perfect Close marries really, really well with Sales EQ. It takes it takes things to different to a different level. And there's another book by Paul Smith, Selling with Stories. I didn't get like in Sales EQ, I just didn't have the room to really get into presentation and stories. I'm taking it, when you buy the book Sales EQ, you get access to the Sales EQ website, and it's it's a membership site with a ton of content. Hopefully, we'll have this interview in there as well when you send me the the link and everything. So we'll drop that in so people can get to it. But There'll be a ton of content in there. There'll be a lot more information on storytelling there. It's a $2,400 value that you get for a year for free when you buy the book. So it'll be the best 20 bucks you ever spent in your life. Yeah, and it's, it, I was going to include a link to that in our show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. It's salesgravy.com slash saleseq. It's, we're putting, we'll put content in. Same thing we did with Vanical Prospecting where we're putting content in every day. And then and then Paul Smith's book on uh, selling the stories. I think you plug in selling with stories into a sales EQ because stories are also ways to activate the brain and activate the way the brain learns and and becomes emotional about and attached to you and what you're selling. So I wish I could have spent, I mean, my publisher cut me off. (laughs) I interviewed Paul for the podcast about a sell with a story and holy cow. So even when in your book, when you were explaining about how the brain works and how stories affect and how people think in stories, that immediately I was like, oh boy, you know, I'm glad, I'm so glad I read his book. I really did learn a lot in his book about the power of stories. And honestly, as I mentioned in that interview, which we'll include a link to in your show notes, I had always sort of misunderstood all this talk of story storytelling and marketing and sales. But after I read his book, then I got it. This isn't, you know, Goldilocks. This no. is very specific. And Paul knows things. his stuff too. And yeah. you, I mean, he's like, you, you, I spent, I did an interview with him a while back. I put it up on YouTube and usually when I'm interviewing, I'm kind of like you, you know, it's back and forth and we're having a conversation. And with him, I just, I just shut up and let him talk. <laughs> he really knows what he's doing. Yeah. He's a smart guy. So we mentioned salesgravy.com. Are there any other ways that listeners can learn more about you and your book? Yeah, I mean, you go to you can go to salesgravy.com forward slash sales EQ. You can go to jebblunt.com, which is my website. And Blunt is spelled B-L-O-U-N-T. So all the Yankees out there, you pronounce it Blount, but everyone else in the South pronounces it Blunt. You can call me anything you want to, but jebblunt.com. And then you know, connect with me on Facebook, I've got my personal page and my business page. Connect me on both of them. You and I follow each other, so we kind of keep up with each other's lives. I love to keep up with what people are doing. Uh, you can connect with me on Instagram. Um, my handle on Instagram is SellsGravy. You can connect me on Twitter. I love Twitter. That's SellsGravy. You can connect with me on uh, LinkedIn and just you know type my name in. You'll find me there. And you know, send me a note. Send me a message. Tell me you heard the interview, and I'll be happy to respond. And most people know that I'm I'm pretty active on social media. So it, it's a neat way to interact with people who read the book and and go buy the book. Um, and if you don't like it, let me know and I'll send you your money back. Wow. Okay. Wow. Look at that. So there you go. Oh, I don't think my staff get... just went, oh my God, I know he didn't just say that. <laughs> no, you, you can back it up. Trust me, there's some books where I think people would ask for their money back. None of them on this show, of course, but <laughs> it's a terrific book. I really think you might want to just take a break for a while at this point after the last two books. The name of the book is Sales EQ, How Ultra High Performers Leverage Sales-Specific Emotional Intelligence to Close the Complex Deal. The author is Jeb Blunt. Jeb, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast again. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 115 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if your next event needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to present to your group key insights from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And as we prepare for my favorite day of the year, 
April Fool's Day. Please join us next time as we welcome Sarah Cooper to the show to talk about her book, 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, How to Get By Without Even Trying. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 